This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, or In Me for short. I'm joined in this episode by a respected colleague with whom I collaborated on a very important project. She's profoundly passionate about theater, and I'm so happy she was willing to have this conversation with me. All right, I'm here with Ms. Sarah Reem, who is, or shall I say, was a colleague at Phillips Exeter Academy. She recently retired as an instructor in the theater and dance department. Our relationship spans four years, but it feels like it has been a lot longer since the years here feel like dog years. She was the first colleague who reached out from a different department to collaborate on an undertaking. Even though I had never supported any theater related projects in my professional past, she was still very interested in my input, which I thought was so odd yet refreshing. From jump, she made it clear to me that she was interested in a true partnership where ideas were exchanged as long as the students and the community could benefit from it. Through our work together, I learned that she's warm, receptive, and very passionate about theater and finding ways to bring diverse representation onto the main stage. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Or shall I say, Ms. Reem, how are you? I'm Sarah, and I'm Sarah to anybody who's graduated. So I try and train my former students to use my name too. Uh, I'm fine, and I'm very happy to be here. Is it weird for you when students start to refer to you as Sarah? No, not really, because when I worked in the theater in, as a director, everybody uses first names, so it was actually weirder for me to come back and be Miss Reem. Got it. And where are you joining me from? I, I am joining you from Brighton, England, where I am in day two of my 10-day quarantine. All right. And what brings you to Brighton, England? Well, I have family here. My sister lives here. But originally, I had planned to come here because I usually do a week-long theater tour with alums. Okay. And we see seven plays in seven days and uh, have a Harkness conversation after each one. So uh, I've been doing that the last 10 years. I just I didn't do it last year because of the pandemic. We had hoped that we would do it again this year and had to cancel it recently because the government kept the 10-day quarantine that would need to relax before we could actually have a group engage in a theater tour. So I already had my ticket to come over and I just decided even though the theater tour didn't run, I would come over and see friends and family because I lived here for a long time before living in Exeter. So it's always oh. nice to come back. How long did you live there for? I lived here for 12 years. And you didn't pick up an accent at all? No, the only Americans in their adult lives who pick up accents do it deliberately. Okay, all right. Yeah. But could you pretend to have an accent? Actually, that'd be inappropriate. Though. I, I yes. Well, I I learned. I went to drama school here, so yes, I learned RP, received pronunciation, standard English, uh, and I I can do it uh, on demand, but not on request. Understood. Understood. <laughs> So can you tell me a little bit about this undertaking in, in Brighton with the uh, alums? So you watch seven plays and you discuss them in Hartness style. How long have you been doing this for? You said 10 years? You know, well, we do it usually in London. People got to know that I love Shakespeare and I, I love theater and I'm like a pig in mud over here. I just I <laughs> love going to the theater and I love talking about it with curious, interested people. And my one rule of thumb is I never let anybody begin a conversation with whether they liked it or not. We have to spend at least 15 minutes of the hour talking about what we noticed about it, because if people lead with their opinions, it tends to shut down other people. 
because either you agree with the person and it's already been said, or you disagree and you don't want to get into a fight. And 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 it, and then people start to defend their positions. And it's so not about that. Yeah. Uh, and and often I think people have the experience of realizing they actually liked something more than they thought they did once they've talked about it for an hour with a dozen other people who have seen different things in it. That's a great facilitation skill. Did you learn that along the way or did you start off doing that? I started off doing it. Uh, I, and really it's because <laughs> I spent years going to theater with actors and then talking about it afterwards. And actors love critiquing other people's work. And I, I realized that if people came in with too critical an eye, it tended to shut down the conversation. But if people came in with an observant eye, it opened things up. Hmm. I think that applies across disciplines, really. Thank you for that. I'm learning from you still, even though you've retired and you're no longer a colleague. I will really. always be a colleague of yours, Hadley. I actually, on the podcast, I am Stena. At some point, this happens where people refer to me as as Hadley, but my stage name is Stena. Stena. Uh, yes, Stena is my middle name. And there's a story behind it that I can share with you at some point. It's embedded in one of my episodes. You'll have to find it. Oh, all right. Now that's a challenge. I'll, okay. Right. And, speak, <laughs> I'll find it. and speaking of episodes, um, so the Identity in Me podcast is uh, centered on conversations around identity, how people identify and the work that they do. Uh, around identity development. And so I ask you, as I ask all of my other guests who come on, how do you identify? Oh, I identify as a lot of things, but I think it, to to tick the boxes that that usually means I'm a cis white, hopefully still middle-aged woman. Okay. Yeah. So when you saw that question, what did you think to yourself initially? I thought, could I identify as a theater geek? Could I identify mm -hmm. as as an introvert who masquerades as an extrovert? Could I? <laughs> there are lots of different ways to answer that question, but none of them fit into the boxes that most people usually want ticked. Understood. Yeah, it's an intentionally open-ended question, and I find that people offer the identities that they find to be most salient. So my next question for you is, how did you find theater, or did theater find you? Well, I grew up in San Francisco in the 60s, and there was a, a theater there, the American Conservatory Theater. And back in those days, it cost about as much to go to the theater as it cost to, to go to the movies. And so my parents took my sister and my brother and me to the theater. And the first play I remember seeing was a comedy. It was like just this ordinary boulevard comedy called Charlie's Aunt. And I... I laughed so hard. I literally fell out of my seat into the aisle and completely mortified my mother. And I just thought it was magic. I, I thought it was it was great. And as a result of that, I think I grew up with an interest in theater. And um, I'd always gone to big public schools in San Francisco. And I went to one when I was in uh, junior high, Marina Junior High School in San Francisco. And it was 97% Cantonese Chinese. And I had signed up for the one elective I could sign up for, which was the drama class. Yeah. And then there were funding cuts and the drama class was cut. Mm -hmm. And I was devastated because I think I was put in shop instead. And so well, I- Like what shop? Yeah, yeah. Where okay. I can tell you right now, I have no more talent now than I did back then. Wow. Okay. And so I looked around to see if there was any other way I could try 
an acting class. And it turned out that the American Conservatory Theater had a young people's program. So I signed up for that and and did a lot of theater when I was a kid, uh, acting and devising shows. And uh, I did that up until the time I came to Exeter as a student. And then I worked in Dramat. And then I kept going when I was in college uh, and kept going after that. So I think I really got interested in it because I happened to grow up in a in a city in a time when I could actually see live plays. How old were you when you went to those shows in San Francisco with your parents? That first show where you fell out of your seat? I was nine. Wow, okay. And your parents, were they avid theater fans? Like they went to theater often to shows? Well, it's interesting. They, I think they were both readers and I was I was thinking about the question of how the play reading series got started. And I remembered something I hadn't thought of in a long time. And that is that my parents belonged to a play reading group. And when I was a little kid, about once a month, they would get together with friends of theirs and gather in the living room and all together read plays. Yeah. And I would tiptoe out of bed and sit on the stairs and listen to them. And I I don't remember exactly what how old I was, but I do remember that I had footsie pajamas. Uh, Those so, are classic. I know. And I was really careful about tiptoeing down in my footsie pajamas so that no one would hear me. And I, I, I remember night after night of just listening to, to my parents and their friends reading plays and how, how cool the stories were. So I don't know. Not, I mean, my father was an architect. My mother was, a, was in politics. Um, and so neither one of them was really in the theater, but they were both uh, they were both great storytellers and they were great readers. OK, so your parents, it sounds like um, they were both college educated. Yeah. Um, OK. And so when you told your parents that you wanted to pursue a career in theater, did they give you the side eye or were they supportive of it? Uh, I, I think, well, they're never going to listen to this, so I can tell you the truth. I mean, my father was a great believer in, you know, you go for whatever you want to go for. Yeah. And my mother kept giving me sensible gray wool skirts that she thought would be really good in an office. Yeah. So she really, <laughs> so she went, hint, hint. yes, exactly. She would say things like, you have a way with words. You do so well in advertising. And so my mother clearly wanted me to have uh, a, a regular normal person career. But I think my father, because my father was an architect and and understood a little bit the the allure of a life in the arts, although architecture is still a profession, uh, sure. you know, he's, the, he's a bit of an artist himself and he loved to do sculpture on the side. So I think he got it. And and he was just generally supportive of anything I wanted to do. Okay, and were your parents immigrants to this country? Were they second generation? My mother's family's been here a long time. Yeah. And my father's family came over. Um, they were farmers and, and they were Quakers who came over with William Penn in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And they in uh, way back, way back. Yeah. yeah. Um, you said William I, Penn. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're yeah, going yeah. Back. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, I think that Quaker thing has stayed in my family for a long time. Okay, and so the spirit of the questions I'm asking um, revolves around like understanding or highlighting that your parents, by virtue of their education and familiarity with theater, was somewhat more open to your not following a 
a traditional path of sorts as a career or taking a risk like going into theater. Um, you and I have talked about this a little bit, you know, the challenges that somebody like me had with getting involved in music and theater. I played in a band for seven years and my parents were okay with my playing in the band, but they always made it a point to tell me like, you know, this is not what's going to happen long term, right? Like this is just something you're doing for fun. And I think recent immigrants have a tendency, particularly in the Caribbean, of encouraging their um, children to find safe opportunities because they don't want their children to struggle. Becoming a doctor or a lawyer and, and, and working in some conventional, and I'm saying conventional as though theater is unconventional, but to a recent immigrant, it's like, what, you're going to become an actor? No, that's not a safe bet. You got to do something realistic in yeah. their minds. And so anyway, I was a big fan of Married with Children when I was a kid. And I saw myself potentially being an extra on that show at some point. And there was like a, a theater tryout and I was going to do it. And my mom caught wind of it and told my dad and he put that to bed. And so I never pursued it. I've told you the story offline before. And then you made it a point. You're like, I'm going to get this dude on the stage. Um, and you weren't successful in getting me on stage, but you got my daughter, my, my four-year-old on stage yep. at the time. Um, she's seven now, and she starred in the first ever um, production in our new theater um, and dance building, um, the Goel Center on campus. So thank you for that. Would you say that your parents were a little bit more open or didn't put up any walls or barriers because of their experience? I mean, it was different, but but my mother was a really bright woman who grew up in the 1950s when there were limited opportunities for women. Yeah. and. I think the reason she wanted me to have, as she often put it, a second string to my bow um, was because she wanted to make sure that I would not be just, quote unquote, just a housewife. And I think the feminist in her wanted me to have more opportunities than she felt she had had. I mean, she worked in the home. She worked outside the home. But she was one of the she's a like fiercely bright woman who did a lot of work in city politics in San Francisco. And she ended up kind of bootstrapping her way up into various different uh, kind of management and leadership positions, but it was not easy for her. And so interestingly enough, I think because it came from a different place than the immigrant place, but I think the, the, the concern was the same in that she wanted me, she wanted to make sure that I had opportunities for a career that she didn't feel she necessarily had been granted. And I think she worried about the fact that if I went on in theater, I'd wake up one day and find myself without job skills yeah. and, and without the way to get the kind of life I wanted to have. But yeah, so I think she began to relax when she realized that I could make a living in the theater. But I don't think she was ever really comfortable with the idea that it, it's a freelance life. Good to hear. And so you stuck with theater, you made it a career, and you um, ultimately ended up being an instructor at Phillips Exeter. And how long did you end up teaching at Phillips Exeter for? I just retired after 24 years. Wow. And it all started with a plan of being here for a year, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. And so I came in four years ago. So I came in 20 years after you arrived. And I was coming out of admissions, having done um, diversity and inclusion work in that space. When I got to the community college, 
the vice president of enrollment said to me, um, actually, it started as early as the interview. Um, they were telling me about how enrollment had been declining and they're looking to get the numbers up and they wanted to get my thoughts on how they could um, appeal more to the students in the area, uh, many of whom were students of color and adults um, about enrolling at the community college. So I shared my ideas. And when I got to uh, the community college, I had to do a lot of problem solving around different aspects of our recruitment strategy um, that weren't landing with the local community. And so eventually I, I helped us steer in a different direction. Enrollment went up significantly, but it required a lot of tinkering and problem solving. And so a lot of my problem solving skills and diversity and inclusion was very much in admissions because I was also at a four-year school doing admissions. And now I transitioned to Phillips Exeter and I'm in student affairs and uh, multicultural affairs. As I'm starting my transition, I get an email from a colleague who says, I'd like to meet to discuss a play reading series. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, going to meet with this colleague to discuss this play reading series. And I'm going to admit this here. I was so nervous meeting with you because I'm like, oh man, I got to have answers here. She wants to collaborate and do this thing that seems huge. I, I got to have answers. As I typically do, I, I listened and eventually was able to be resourceful or a resource to you. But I was really struck by your willingness to listen to me and to seek a partnership, even though I didn't really have a background in developing a play reading series or anything of the sort. So today I ask you, why me? Like you had other people on campus that you could have reached out to and here I am brand new. I mean, did you even, did you look at my resume to say, oh, I think based on his admissions background and, and diversity and inclusion, he's the guy I want to work with. No, and I, I, I never looked at your resume. I hope a skill that I have developed over time is that I, I read people, and I I try to read people with an open heart, and I could tell almost instantly that you were open and receptive and enthusiastic and smart and happy to collaborate, and so I figured that you had things to teach me and the. It's interesting because I've worked with people up and down the professional um, scale in the theater. And the people who I have worked with who have been the most open and have had the learner mindset and, and modeled it for me have been people who are really at the top of their profession. Um, I did a show once with Sir Neville Mariner, who is who started the uh, Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Orchestra. And um, he is within classical music circles. He is a real icon. And I did a show with him when I was in my late 20s. And I would, did the Shakespeare part of it. We did this production of Beatrice and Benedict, Much Ado About Nothing. He did the or orchestrations and I did the, the Shakespeare. And he took me out for a drink after the first rehearsal. And he said, I know nothing about theater. And he said, I, I want you to teach me all about theater. And I assume you don't know as much about music as I do. So why don't we just mm. help each other? Yeah. And and I found that kind of openness and generosity of spirit so surprising in somebody like him. And but but I've always tried to hang on to that learner mindset and that assumption of goodwill. And um, so I knew almost instantly that you would be somebody who would be fun to work with. Thank you for that. I didn't realize I radiated that energy or that spirit, but 
I'm, I'm glad you read that and um, that we worked on this together. And it's come a long way and I look forward to continuing to work on the play reading series uh, with somebody else in the department. I know where the idea came from, but what were your goals with the play reading series here at the Academy? I think there were twofold. Um, one was that I think students, because it costs so much to go to the theater these days, students are coming to the Academy increasingly theatrically illiterate through yeah. no fault of their own. It's it's hard to get to see li live theater. It isn't offered that many places. And wh where it is offered, it's often really expensive and hard to get to. And this is unlike when you were growing up. You said initially yeah. it was as inexpensive to go to the theater as it was to uh, the movie theater, which is right. no longer the case. And why did that change? Just if you could shed some light on that. Well, I, I, I costs mount. Uh, I, you know, I, I think things just get more expensive over time. I think uh, for a long time, I think there were people who were writing plays with fewer actors because of rising costs. Mm. But I know I think everything gets more expensive uh, and that just gets reflected in ticket prices. And also we live in a country that has no real national subsidy of the arts sure, in yeah. England. Every small town in England still has a resident theater company and it, kids grow up going to the theater here, which is why they're not afraid of Shakespeare. They grow up with it. And it's, it's just like a, a shrub in the backyard. <laughs> and so to your point, um, growing up, my family never took me to a theater performance. I went right. to the movies though. Sure. Um, and I didn't go to a theater uh, performance until after I graduated from college, I think. And I was an upward bound counselor and um, was a chaperone on a field trip to uh, a Broadway musical. And so when you talk about this matter of um, theater illiteracy, I identify with that. Yeah. And so continue, please. I, I wanted to expose all students to theater, to more theater. And uh, in a play reading, you can you know, as I did when I was a kid listening to my parents, you can have a sense of a play. It's not the full production, but there's a lot of the play that you can get, particularly if you have sensitive readers. It doesn't take a huge amount of time. There's a lot of bang for the buck when you do play readings. So there was that part of it, just to get more great material, uh, make it available to students. Also, uh, we wanted to get more students of color interested in theater and uh, to get them auditioning for main stage shows. And we wanted to to kind of hook them with great stories and great plays that that were coming through the play reading series. Uh, and I think also I particularly wanted to share the really great work coming in the last, particularly the last 40 years from writers of color and, uh, and to showcase them in a way. I mean, we read them in the English department, but it's a different experience reading a play than it is hearing, uh, hearing it. And, so I think I, that was all part of that was all part of the thinking, and I think finally there are all kinds of good playwrights that I mean it'll be interesting to see what the theater department does, but but certainly during the time that I was there, the policy was that all plays were open to all students, and uh, I love the work of August Wilson, for instance. But August Wilson is really really clear about the fact that he is writing. Black plays for black actors to perform. I mean, I uh, originally he really wanted them for black audiences, but I mean that opened up. But but the the the, the absolute fixture was black actors playing black parts, and so we couldn't do that as a main stage play and just say if you're not black, you don't need to apply. 
Mm-hmm. And and so I think what we did was the race blind casting, non-traditional casting. But I think as we've moved, particularly the last 20 years, and this was actually reflected in a, in a big debate that uh, August Wilson had with Robert Brustein at the American Repertory Theater in New Haven. Um, the thinking was that race blind casting was not, um, was its own kind of suppression that you were asking black actors or actors of color to play white parts. And so the Wilson's thinking was that you needed to have uh, more parts for more black actors. And so what I, part of what I wanted to do with the play reading series was to share with students really great work that we were not able to do on the main stage because our policy was to make everything available to everybody. Working with you on the play reading series allowed me to read some different plays that I hadn't been exposed to. I mean, I've heard of August Wilson. I read Fences in high school, um, but I had never uh, heard of or read Anna in the Tropics by Nilo Cruz, FOB by David Henry Huang. I was also happy to be assisting in the broadening of playwrights that um, our community was being um, exposed to, particularly our students. And so what were some takeaways for you from the play reading series in terms of things you learned um, and tools that you would share with others? I think one of them is consult, consult, consult. You know, I, <laughs> you know, I remember with Take Me Out, yeah. uh, I mean, it, it's a brilliant play, but it's a difficult play because there's some very tough language in there. And you and I didn't know quite how to handle that. Yeah. And, yeah. and so in a way that would be true to the nature of the play because I mean it's all about the danger of language and and yet not risk triggering or being offensive to students. And so we actually turned around and talked to the cast and they came up with I thought a really thoughtful response which was to do the play as written but to preface it with a comment about acknowledging the difficulty of the language and that this was not the perspective that any of us had. It wasn't the perspective that the playwright had. He was highlighting the the pain that can be caused and the damage that can be caused when people use hurtful language. And I thought that turning to them and, and getting their response was also a way to have them further invest themselves in the project. And, and they, they really kind of solved it. So I think like, time and again, I find that I know what I'm skilled at and I know what I am a newbie at. And I want to stay very humble about the things that I don't know and and very open to the insights of other people who know, who have better ideas about that than I do. Absolutely. And that came across and I appreciated that. And as you noted, we were both learning in that moment. And, you know, the learning that I've had to do here um, has been significant. It has been a culture shift, um, experiencing, working, where I was before at a community college, um, particularly in Worcester, Massachusetts, in an inner city to coming here at a boarding school in a small town um, that had so much history, um, some of which we're still grappling with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I learned very quickly that some of the conversations that students could have at the community college in the inner city that was very diverse weren't conversations that we could seamlessly have here. Um, the play reading series 
would not have required as much preparation and discussion and intentional thought as it did here. And so I learned a lot from the planning process with you and hearing from the students, particularly with that play. And it's interesting, as the students were sharing their thoughts on how to proceed with this, I said to myself, hold on, this is no different than what happens when you go to the movies uh, at the beginning where it says it's rated R, it's PG-13. And at this point, we've kind of learned what rated R means, what PG-13 means. I think those lines have been blurred a little bit um, (laughs) over the years. Um, Because I'm like, hold on, this is PG, this is is PG-13? My my times have changed. But essentially what they were doing was that. They were telling the audience what to expect, to be ready. And so, yes, it was revolutionary in the sense that we were willing to do that at the beginning of a play, but it's been happening in movies for a long Mm -hmm. time. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. And I have this feeling that at some point, the play reading series might be something like the Sarah Ream of <laughs> play reading. I, I have a feeling that that's going to happen. Your name will be in that theater building somewhere. Uh, I don't care about that, but I want to see Hadley Stena Camillas on stage. <laughs> that that'll come back for. Someday, maybe. Okay. All right. Well, you have a good one. And I know this won't be the last time we get to have a conversation. Not at all. I will miss you. Likewise. Take care. So there are a couple of thoughts that I want to expand on from the episode. Something that struck me was when Sarah talked about the way her mother attempted to influence her career path versus her dad's very relaxed approach. Did you catch that? Sarah's father was far more comfortable with her pursuing a career in theater than her mom, who seemed to be more reserved yet calculated about which career path Sarah should pursue. So why was her father's approach so carefree? Think about that. I also want to specify my role with the play reading series and explain why it worked. One of my tasks was to recruit readers for the place. This required me to develop relationships with students and to do so in a variety of ways. I went to club meetings, I interacted with them in different settings on campus, and so by the time many of them read on stage, we had established some rapport. This allowed me to ask them questions and to gauge how they were really feeling about different things along the way. It's important to also add that Sarah and I were true partners. There was a continuous feedback loop going on to figure different things out. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Until the next episode, keep reflecting. Identity and me. Identity and me.